Are you waiting for everything to be perfect before you decide to enjoy life? Stop waiting. Start living. Welcome to Life in 22 Minutes with Scott and Becky McIntosh, where you will hear inspiring stories from imperfect people living life with courage, humor, and a whole lot of love, despite challenging circumstances to bring hope to your heart and a smile to your face in only 22 minutes. Now, let's welcome the host of the show, Scott and Becky McIntosh. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life in 22 Minutes. Scott and I are really excited to introduce you to our special guest, our beautiful friend, Tiffany Berg Coffrin. Tiffany serves as a clinical hospice and corporate chaplain. She is a leading innovator in the science of emotional wellness and healing from loss and trauma. She has worked with high-crisis first responders as well as high-level executives to bring calm to trauma. She is the creator and founder of Make Peace Systems. So, Scott, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, I've got a whole list of things I'd like to say. Her charity work has been featured in People magazine, Oprah's Big Give, and Good Morning America. In 2004 to 2006, Tiffany was the producer and host of her TV radio show, Succeeding Gracefully. From 2004 to 2012, she co-founded Heart Two Homes, raising over $3.5 million. Tiffany was, 2000, was the 2007 reigning Miss Utah, United States. She is the best-selling author of eight books on emotional wellness in 2009, Tiffany became a widow when she lost her husband to cancer. In 2013, the light returned to her eyes when she remarried her high school sweetheart, Vernon. Together, they have eight children and five grandchildren. Welcome to the show, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. It is exciting. <laughs> you know, one of the many things that I love about you, Tiffany, is your openness about your life experiences to help others and find hope and healing. And in the book, Success Through Failing, Finding Your Greatest Gifts in Our Darkest Hours, you wrote, I guess I've always been the one who had to touch the hot stove before I understood the concept of getting burned. I've struggled most of my life to see my own value, my own contribution, and my own courage. I've wondered what success really could mean for a girl like me, a poster child for failure. Okay, so we just heard Scott rattle off this long list of incredible accomplishments. So how did someone who saw herself as a poster child for failure overcome that self-doubt and belief and accomplish so many great and wondrous things? It's a good question. Um, you know, we all have to deal with a couple of things. Uh, the things that life does to us, the things that happen to us, and the things that we do to ourselves. And some of that is just um, self-esteem issues or uh, self-doubt. And so to me, that's been a really big part of my experience is working through that self-doubt. Let me give you an example. My first pregnancy was nine months of being over the toilet, just mm -hmm. throwing up every day. It wasn't just morning sickness. It was noon sickness. It was four o'clock in the afternoon sickness. It was throughout the night sickness. And yet at the end of all of that sickness, I delivered a beautiful baby girl. And so I think when you compare your life to an ideal, uh, 
you know, you think, oh, pregnancy is going to be this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it doesn't actually look like that. You can feel like you're failing all along the way because it doesn't look like you expected it to look. It's not as glamorous as you expect it to be. And, and you worry, am I doing it right? But in the end, you can accomplish so many great things if you just stay with it and move forward anyway. Something beautiful is going to happen in the end. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And it's such a blessing to have people around you that can say, you know, you're, you're doing, you're on the right path. You're doing great things. And right now it just may not feel so great, but it actually is powerful. Yeah. yeah, and it's for the right reasons. Often mm-hmm. it's for the right reasons, even if we can't yeah. see those reasons. Yeah, and I think sometimes we can get very jaded. You know, our capitalism in our country, this whole philosophy is you deserve it right now. And instant gratification. And the things that are so eternal and so valuable really don't play on that same field. They don't They don't come around right in the next hour or two hours. And so being able to see your end goal and feel a real sense of purpose and conviction about that actually can pull you through the hours that aren't so, aren't so great. Right. So I mentioned you are a chaplain. How long have you been a chaplain? Uh, almost seven years. And what led you to becoming a chaplain? In 2007, uh, my late husband was diagnosed with cancer. That was the year that I was serving as Mrs. Utah. And I really didn't know a lot about grief. Really, I, I knew a lot about recovery from addiction. I'd worked with um, that group for a long time, but I really didn't know anything about grief and, and especially losing someone just so close to me. And I didn't realize how it would, how it would shake everything that I believed to the core. And uh, about a year, almost a year and a half, two years after he passed, I decided that I needed to get some help and educate myself and also educate my kids. How do we get through this? Um, having five children and, and watching them suffer as well, that was what led me to excuse me, to go back to school and, and really begin understanding what is grief? What is this uh, process that we go through? And what are those things that my kids will need from me? And what are the things that I need from God? So that process started and I grew to love it and love helping other people as they walk through that too. How old were your children? Five between the ages of nine and 19. And, and the grief process is so different for every person. I, I, I know of several um, people who have lost children and they end up in divorce mm-hmm. and they were fine before that. And, and I've heard it put this way. You can correct me if I'm wrong, that on one certain day, um, one person's happy and it just irritates the heck out of the other person. That they're happy. How could you be happy today? You know, because they're having an exceptionally bad day and, and then it can switch and they, they just start, I don't know, annoying each other that they're not feeling the same way. Yeah. Can, can you touch on a little bit of that? One of the things about grief is grief is so isolating. 
Um, it is one of those experiences where you feel like no one has suffered like I'm suffering. Mm-hmm. And because of that, when you have partners, like you said, if one is in deep suffering and the other is happy, that can trigger feelings of survivor guilt, uh, that can trigger feelings of resentment and blame. And gosh, grief is kind of like a soup. There can be so much in it. It's not just one emotion, like one color crayon. It's not just one color. There can be shame if there's been a suicide or there's still unanswered questions. There can be rage if it was caused by a drunk driver. There could, so there's loss and sadness and sorrow and guilt and resentment. And, and it really comes together like this soup. And two people that are very close together can often trigger each other because their emotions aren't going to be parallel. Right, yeah. And emotions are real. It's something mm-hmm. that nobody can change the way we feel or tell us we're wrong for feeling the way we're feeling. Yeah. Unfortunately, in our culture today, uh, to really heal from grief, we have to do things that are counterculture. Our culture is so much about, hey, um, if, if something bad has happened to you, bounce back put on a smiley, happy face, be positive, um, which being positive is a great thing, but being fake is not a good thing. So uh, we have so many ways to escape technology, uh, self-medicating. So our culture, uh, it's almost like running a marathon on a broken leg. Um, We too quickly encourage people to reinvent themselves and put on a happy face. Mm -hmm. Give ourselves some well, time. Just yesterday uh, in the NFL, one of the players hyperextended his knee and broke his leg right mm-hmm. there on the right mm-hmm. there on the field. Mm-hmm. And uh, my husband replayed it over and hit, "Honey, come! You gotta come <laughs> see this. This is crazy." And and I thought to myself, you know, how often do things like that happen? Like the shooting in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. that is very very public. Everyone knows about it, and yet we just move on. And the reality is when people have a trauma like that, um, things that they've seen or even things that they're physically going through, uh, we really can't expect that. And our culture is very productivity-based, and so the guilt of not being productive really pulls people back into the game too soon. Mm-hmm. And another thing that, that starts to happen, too, it's really important that we understand that our with our technology, when we replay things over and over again, like 9-11, uh, little children were thinking that airplanes were, were every day going into buildings mm-hmm. and because they were seeing it on the news every day. And so we want to make sure that, that we're open to listening to the feelings and the questions and, and the unresolved grief uh, without re-traumatizing and again, because of the way our culture does things, often those videos are replayed and replayed for a long time. Right. And and you're a grief counselor. So this isn't just something that you're just like, oh, this is what I went through a little bit. And here, let me help you. This is this is some of it's based on what you went through, but some of it's based on knowledge that you've gained by becoming becoming a grief counselor. Who wants to become a grief counselor? <laughs> Who wants to deal with people when they're in their hardest time? You know, I never would have, you know, at five or six years old in school, first grade, you know, what what do you want to be when you grow up? I never would have shouted, oh, pick me, pick me. I want to be, (laughs) I want to be, um, helping people through grief. And yet 
Um, what I understand is that, you know, even here in Utah, we have 54 people that pass away every day. So you think about 54 people passing away every day in our state, how many families are affected every day. And then you think about even things like cancer diagnosis. One in two people will be diagnosed with cancer. So even if people aren't passing away on any given day, people are being diagnosed with hard things like cancer. And what I came to realize is people really need better tools and grief will come to all of us. We can avoid that. And what I love is just being in the trenches with people um, in the ER and the ICU and having those discussions and giving tools that our culture doesn't readily give. It gives them permission to hurt. Right. And, and get better. We had yeah, Chantel McBride, the cheerful chaplain, and we talked about that, that her job is to go in there and and just be kind and love people when they're in their last hours of life. And she loves that. And you love doing what you're doing. And there's just, it just takes a certain personality to feel like you're giving people hope when they're in their darkest hour instead of looking at it and pointing the mirror back at them and saying, well, how does this affect me? This, this, this is going to be tough and all that. But you don't care about that. You just go in thinking about others. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. Truly, I think it's an opportunity to see how brave and beautiful people are. Uh, one of the things, I do corporate chaplaincy as well. So I work with corporate individuals when there's maybe a loss on their team, someone on their team passes of cancer or there's uh, layoffs. Those are hard corporately. Um, but as well, you know, when you're working with someone in the ICU or the ER, one of the things that I love is there's no facade there. They're not led by their title. They're not led by how much money they have. They're just there. And, and all of that is very stripped away and they're, they're open and they're real. And I love that part. You get to see people's true bravery. And people that live outside of Utah and don't have Chaplain Coffrin coming. You've written books that can help them to go through these steps. And to, you've even written a, a book for children with cancer or has lost somebody to, to cancer. So tell us about some of your books. Well, I have one coming out early in 2018, and that one is specifically uh, steps uh, from the Make Peace Systems, mm -hmm. where people can actually kind of get a handle on, you know, what they're going through, understanding what are the impacts physically of grief, um, what creates PTSD in in layman's terms. It's very it's a very easy read. Uh, we all know when you're grieving, it's hard to retain information. So this book is really a guide for people that are that are really in the thick of it. Um, I've done some other books that are more um, for women coming out of addiction and uh, self-destructive behavior, as well the book on cancer for children. That's been great. I've been able to go into schools and actually do color therapy workshops with kids and have loved that. Whether they have cancer or they know someone with cancer, it helps them understand how to deal with sad feelings. So does time heal all wounds? No, I think that's one of the greatest myths. It would be lovely if it did. <laughs> 
because then you could just sit back in your rocking chair and let the years pass and you'd feel better. The reality is there are certain things that time doesn't heal. In fact, given time, it's almost like a wound that's infected. Three different things won't heal by themselves. And the first one is regret. If you haven't forgiven yourself for something, that won't heal on its own. Time will, you will just feel less and less confident. You'll blame yourself more and more. Uh, your self-care will decrease and, and you actually sabotage yourself. So given time, that becomes worse. The second thing is remorse. Uh, it comes from the Latin word to bite and to bite again. And it's almost that bitterness of blame uh, where you have remorse about what someone else has done. And gosh, if we don't forgive, um, we can't heal, can't move forward. And the third one is fixation. We talked about the Las Vegas shooting and 9-11. Fixation can be that uh, maybe an image or a sound or even a smell that gets out of sync. Uh, and what happens is it can't move to our long-term memory because it's our brain can't figure it out. And usually it's maybe if you've been in an accident and you've seen something you can't unsee, those things actually take professional help um, mm -hmm. to work through given time if they're not healed you know we see our veterans having ptsd and ocd they can actually increase in severity wow uh, and our police officers as well <clears throat> absolutely yeah and i've heard you say that healing comes from the heart not the brain yeah you know i think in our culture today with technology we think data will solve everything uh, and the reality is gosh if you have a missing child and, and you, you don't have the data, you still have to find a way to heal. And our brain will never, even if we know what's happened, our brain is still going to try and piece things together in a way that's quite horrific. So data isn't what heals. Healing always comes from that soul. Going to those places where we are able to quiet the noise, those sacred places where we quiet the noise enough that our heart feels the answer. And it's, it's not as easy as it sounds, but the reality is we have to quiet the noise before we get the closure. So I tell people just go for peace over closure. When you have peace, closure will come. So for someone that is listening and hearing you say this, and they have a lot of noise going on right now, how do they quiet that? What are some some suggestions that you get? I, I already know the answer. You go to the mountains. Exactly. You go to the mountains. <laughs> Everybody go, go to the mountains. To the mountains. <laughs> no. That or go to your beautiful lake outside. Oh, my goodness. It's beautiful with the ducks and the sunrise. There's a couple of things that people can do. Um, the first thing is get away from technology. We, we really are, you know, we're natural beings. Our body is natural. Technology is not natural. So we live by this pulse of technology, our lights, our computers, our phones. So anything that you can do to put technology away and go out in nature, go to the mountains, very quickly you will feel a quietness, a calm, and you'll feel that pulse of nature. Uh, the longer you can spend there, the better. Usually takes an hour to two hours, sometimes up to three hours to actually feel 
like you're in that pulse, uh, but really getting away from that, getting away from um, all that noise. Another thing is recognizing some of the noise is chemical. And so we have to be very careful what we put in our mouths. Um, sometimes we're actually creating more noise if we're eating sugar, if we're drinking a lot of caffeine, that can put us on a roller coaster and we're not always in tune to spiritual things when we're on that roller coaster. So those are a couple of things people can do. I like that. You said it takes some time, often takes three hours. I didn't want Becky to know that it could happen in three hours because I tell her I need to be gone for three days. (laughs) (laughs) Well, really, you know, the, the longer you can pull away and especially, you know, our culture, when people are feeling like the noise is just too intense, that's usually when people self medicate. Um, it's usually when people, you know, spend two hours on Facebook and and really wasting time. The reality is, if you use that time and just go to the mountains or go to nature or even, you know, take your shoes off in the grass and put it, you know, yeah. classical music on, you will feel differently within an hour or two hours. And you know how you can tell if you if you've really done it well is after two or three hours, you have a feeling of love and forgiveness for people. It's not just entertainment. It's not just escaping. It's actually what is restoring your soul and making you whole. You'll feel differently. But but you could do that in downtown Manhattan just by walking. Absolutely. Just go for a walk. Put put down your phone, put down your, your... Technology, as you said, your electronics, and just go for a walk. Well, in two days, we head to Kenya, where we're going to be unplugged for two weeks. We're actually, <laughs> in, right we're actually in Kenya right now. When, when, this, when this comes out, when this episode rolls out, <laughs> we are in Kenya. <laughs> the next episode after this one, it'll be us sharing our stories and <laughs> adventures in, of Kenya. So as we round 22 minutes, Tiffany... How can our listeners connect with you? You can just go to my name, TiffanyCoffrin.com, and that Let's will... spell Coffrin. Okay. C-O-U-G-H, like cough, and then R-A-N. There you go. <laughs> R-A-N. Well, you're doing great things. We appreciate having you on the show. It's mm-hmm. You're wonderful as always. You're just so sweet and, and helping of people. I, I love that about you. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Life in 22 Minutes. If you liked what you heard... Tell your friends about us and please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review. Your review will help us to broaden our audience. Until next time, don't wait for things to be perfect. Get out there and live life with courage, humor, and a whole lot of love.